Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, dude, so I saw the first Matrix again in IMAX. It was so awesome. The sound was incredible. I've never heard it sound that good. Uh, the movie just makes me so unreasonably happy, you know? But uh, it's funny. I, I was like, I don't know if I need to see it again, but uh, a bunch of my friends were going, and I'm really excited about Revolution, so I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'll go see it. And uh, I'm so glad that I did, dude. I'm so glad that I did. It just reminded me of this weird time where, essentially, the first time I saw The Matrix was on VHS, probably on some 24-inch cathode ray tube television back in the day. And it still blew my fucking mind. Of course. Of course. But I remember, at the time, the big movie that summer that I'd seen that I was so jazzed on was, of course, uh, The Phantom Menace, you know? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. loved that. And then... At home, I watched The Matrix on VHS, and I was like, oh, no, actually, I'm an adult now, and I like adult cinema. <laughs> you know, that was my, that was my oh, reaction. Oh, that was your awakening, that, wasn't it? Exactly. That immediate, oh, no, actually, I need to put away childish put things. Put away these figurines. I'm like 13 at mm-hmm. the time, you know? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big man. I'm a big, strong oh, man of course. who likes guns and people shooting yeah. each other. And I have very much Man, taste, you totally upgraded, you know? and that's just like a living embodiment of the Winnie the Pooh yeah. meme. Yes, exactly. Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. <laughs> right. He's wearing a tuxedo now. Yes. And now I watch it and I'm like, this is the most just goofy, fun, achingly sincere movie. That was something that struck me watching it again. I was like, from the beginning, they were so corny and in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so funny to to just watch like Lawrence Fishburne, who up until that point, an actor I love, but who had been 
in so many really intense movies. Right. I think about like Deep Cover, right. where he is so absolutely like righteous, intense, like filled with this. He's like armed with all of this injustice, all of yeah. these facts that are just boiling inside of him yeah. and making him this like freight train of justice. Boys in the know? hood. Oh, and again, yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. yes. Furious slightly, styles, yeah. Right, right. That's a, a slightly more low key version, but the same basic same energy. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the Matrix and he is so wide-eyed, sincere, just like I I am buying into this goofy like mythology so hard. It was it was really cool. It was really fun to see. I think the action holds up. The style and the fashion and the aesthetic of the Matrix is <laughs> that did not age well. I well, still love the movie. I love the movie and I they, I hold them I hold the first one very dear to my heart. Yeah. The aesthetic is it, it it's it's a big swing. I would say it's become a sort of kitsch that actually helps the movie in the tone that I'm talking about, where it's like, I mean, the Wachowskis are incredibly sincere, earnest, corny people. You, you, that's That's just in their bones as storytellers. And to sort of see the style of it become something silly and very like frozen in yeah, amber yeah. you know the, the <laughs> just forever frozen in time in the back of a dragula one might say it it actually it, it kind of brings it harmonizes those do you ever wonder like why me. none of them ever just decided to wear t-shirts and jeans when they went into the matrix they all had to wear like the slickest outfits ever no one just showed up in like a band t-shirt and like uh some chuck taylor's casual day everyone's working the finest threads in that movie uh, yeah but no one just decides that they want to show up in a scooby-doo t-shirt and you know some ripped jeans man that that would definitely be my matrix warrior outfit. it definitely would be yours that's alex core yes. to the bone absolutely <laughs> just a kind of shapeless brown hoodie. yeah yeah just like keep my hands perpetually in that mm -hmm. big front pocket a gray you know? t-shirt yeah. yeah just bummy as shit yeah uh, a few holes great. in it yeah i like that and some slippers maybe not even slippers, just some socks just some socks <laughs> just barefoot, in the matrix you know? just fucking abbey road that I like, shit <laughs> i like the idea socks in the matrix that's a foolish that's flarty don't do that i like the idea that you're going in specifically with the thought of the machines need to program this <laughs> you know the machines need to consider and program that i'm going to be walking around dirty alleyways and socks and they have to program it so that my socks realistically <laughs> degrade in that environment and the machines are just like why why are we wasting our time with this you want them to just question what they're doing, you know? It's like, is this really worth It's a stalling <laughs> tactic, okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, are we getting into this? Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Goat Season. We are so happy to have you with us. This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams both in front of and behind the camera. I'm Phil Mitchell, and along with me is my co-host, Mr. Alex Sinesi. Dude, what it do? What it do, man? Ah, I'm chilling, man. Casual mm -hmm. Sunday. What you sipping Crazy on, man? Sunday up in here. What you sipping on? Uh, I got a little, little uh, trash white wine here. Actually, I'm about to to cook a nice like shrimp scampi later. So I was okay. thinking, you know, 
what the hell? Yeah, let me bust into this cooking wine that I got from Dollar General. Oh, so, you know, son, we're breaking just, uh... it out, busting out the Dollar General wine. My, okay. We are really. Oh, we are there. It is Sunday. <laughs> we're high rolling. We really we're are. High rolling, Whew, I love that. Yeah. Bring me some I of know, that, dude. baby. Keeping it real class. Right on the streets. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. He's taking mm-hmm. a sip off of that wine right now, y'all. Yeah, it's got got that nice, like, kind of vegetable matter mixed with just, like, straight alcohol taste. Ooh, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. That's the nose on this thing. That's the flavor profile you're going for. It's, like, real simple. Yeah, you know? that's some trash wine you got there, my bro. Yeah, it's, it's not good. Anyway. Today we are talking about episodes 11 and 12 of Lost, the first season, which are entitled All the Best Cowboys Have Daddy Issues and Whatever the Case May Be. What do you think about these episodes, man? It's a weird pair, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm very glad once again that these two episodes have been conjoined in our schedule. It's more interesting, I think, to talk about each in relation to the other because on the one hand, you got one of my favorite episodes of the first season, All the Best Cowboys is a fucking great ride. I remember this was an absolute nail-biter. It was Um, an exciting episode. It's a really exciting Mm -hmm. episode, yeah. And it just moves, dude. It moves the whole way. The emotional moments of it hit you so hard. Just watching it again, I'm like, this episode is so effective. Mm -hmm. You know, knowing what's going to happen, it still gets you. Yeah. It still works on you. And then the other episode... Whatever the case may be, is a very strange episode. <laughs> very strange episode. I, I don't even think it's a bad episode, dude, really. I, <sighs> it's just in the wrong place. It's in the wrong place. It is and so in the yeah, wrong place I, and in I, this I don't, season. Like, what? Do we just want to go ahead and... Let's just go ahead. Yeah. What's Why not? What's going on here? All right. So, yes. yeah. All the best cowboys have daddy issues as a Jack Sawyer. Excuse me, Jack Shepard. I was about to say Jack Sawyer, and that would be Jack an Sawyer. interesting character on Lost. No, um, it's Jack Shepard, and it's uh, his specific episode. It picks up pretty much immediately after the abduction of Charlie and Claire. Uh, and so in this episode, a couple of other storylines uh, come to a close, like Sawyer and Saeed, they come to an understanding. Walt kind of comes to the forefront, and I love me some Walt. In fact, I kind of wish that there was a TV show where Sawyer and Walt and Hurley were the only three survivors on the island. Just because those three, I think, just have a good chemistry. I think Walt has good chemistry with everyone, but he's got especially good chemistry with Hurley and Sawyer. And they just can throw lines of back course. and forth. Yeah. It's like a tennis match it really with those is. three. You know? It's like suddenly we're in some Meisner <laughs> method shit where these three can just throw energy back and forth so at well. each other. And uh, you're like, why is this not happening exactly. with the rest exactly. of the Exactly. Oh, man. You know? yeah, I love that those, the dynamic between the three of those. You're like, does everybody else just hate each other? And these three mm-hmm. were just Hanging partying. Out, tearing it up on the island. Anyway. Uh, so Jack, Locke, <laughs> Kate, and Boone immediately start combing the island in a hunt for Charlie and Claire. And meanwhile, Michael, he leads like a separate search party um, on another part of the island. Boone oh, yeah, and Locke. Yeah, I know. Nothing happened. Nothing happened during that manhunt uh, led by Michael because he comes back empty handed. I don't even know why they decided to make him do that because he disappears you don't see him for most of the episode, and then he comes back and he's like, "We found nothing," and you're just like, "Oh, okay. We didn't even know that you went off and did something." Yeah, I just remember uh, he has a line where he says, "I might not be a warrior, but I am going south." And Harold Perrineau's expression at the end of that 
just told me that he hated that line so <laughs> right. much. Right. It's it's a weird line where it feels like it's going to resolve right. into something good, it and doesn't. then it just doesn't. And you can tell he was just like, yeah, I don't know what to do with he that He does one, nothing man. for the rest of the episode. And the th- awful thing is that it's immediately undercut by Hurley, who makes the joke like, oh, yeah, back where I'm from, I'm also known as a warrior. And that's great. And it's a, a great yeah, line mm-hmm. reading. And it, it just, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, anyway. Hurley's just getting some of the best material right now. He really is. They're in the pocket with the Hurley stuff. Absolutely. For sure. So we've got Boone and Locke, and they are sort of bonding during their search for Charlie and Claire. Jack and Kate, on the other hand, are sort of bumping heads with one another. They stumble upon Ethan. Ethan knocks Jack unconscious. And so during the flashback timeline, Jack is having another conflict with his father, Christian Shepard, whose alcoholism uh, cost a patient their life during surgery. Um, And so after Christian pressures Jack to cover for the mistake, Jack decides to come clean to the hospital board about his father's uncontrolled drinking. And I'm pretty much assuming that is what leads to Christian Shepard losing his medical license and going on a bender. So I think that's the connection from this episode to, what is it, White Rabbit? Right, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, so back in the current timeline, Jack, he finds Charlie near death after Ethan has uh, hung him from a tree. He was able to, after much effort, resuscitate Charlie. Charlie's basically catatonic after surviving the trauma, and the episode ends with Locke and Boone discovering a large metallic object in the jungle dirt. Yeah, and that's the episode. It's a great cliffhanger. Good cliffhanger, right? It is. Dude, so much happens in this episode. And I was thinking about it, how if this was a modern television show that had maybe a 10 or 12 episode order, this would be the episode leading into the last handful. This is the one where everything ramps up. This is like nobody knows anything. This is Isabella. This is, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It really feels like that. And it's so funny how they got this really great pace. They were bringing out all these mysteries. The others have never been a more sort of exciting mystery than they Mm -hmm. are right now. And then we get the hatch right at the end. And it's like, (laughs) oh, shit. Yes. Can't wait to see what happens after (laughs) this. Psych. Right. It's so strange, man. They just, you can tell that the combination of the episode order and I think the short time, it just had them like hamstrung a little bit as far as getting these stories in the right order. So this was something just off of your point that I was thinking about is one, I wish that this had been the first Jack flashback. Mm -hmm. This should have been the first Jack flashback. And then are the flashbacks working in reverse chronological order at this point? I think you're right. I think they okay. are. Because both both of the ones we're talking about this week, Jack's and Kate's, are both working backwards mm-hmm. from the previous flashback and from the point of the plane crash. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking. I didn't realize that the first watch through. I, I have a, a hot take about this, too. Go for it. My take here is that... This is the best Jack episode ever. Yeah. I don't even just mean in terms of the flashback. I think this might be the peak of his character on this show. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the best episode where he's just this blunt instrument of almost reckless heroism. Mm -hmm. 
who is so desperate to revive Charlie in just one of the best moments of all time on the show. I mean, that scene Mm -hmm. is absolutely incredible. And as many times as I've seen it, it still gets me that Charlie is dead. And we have the moment where we actually go into mourning for this character. And it never fails to carry that sort of potency. And then when he starts hitting him in the chest again, it feels so wrong yeah you know he's just wailing on his sternum and they did such a smart thing of having ethan step on jack's sternum just a few minutes before to sort of already get you like cringing about the idea of someone's chest being so fragile and then he's doing that and you can tell kate is just like so upset so so she's disturbed by by it Mm -hmm. and then it brings him back to fucking life yeah it's it fucking rules man it's so good and you're right it does feel like there's almost like a desecration going on of like the body and then you're just like this feels disgusting and then yeah it brings Mm -hmm. charlie back to life it's a great moment i think it is like i i'm not sure it's the best jack episode i'm not saying i disagree with you i just don't remember Mm -hmm. some of the other jack centric episodes i'd say this is definitely top two if not the best one it's fox i think at his best and again i think fox is fine throughout the series if not just he's great throughout the series and this is where i think the writing also meets the talent level because we've Mm -hmm. been talking a lot about how they hired on a lot of great actors and then i think underserved them with the writing and this is one of the moments where i think that they actually match the talent that the actors are bringing uh to the screen it's funny because you have uh william mpother in this episode but mpother matthew fox's performance reminded me a bit of his cousin tom cruise in a good way, which is that I was kind of struck by like how Matthew Fox might be at his best when he's giving a purely physical performance. Mm-hmm. His weak points might be kind of when he has to interact with other characters or has to seem sort of like a charismatic figure that people want to follow. Right. But when he is just like struggling in the mud and so like desperately flailing around and uh you know doing this like brutal cpr on mm-hmm. charlie all of that stuff works mm-hmm. so well and it, it kind of makes me think of like an actor who isn't great with other people but who is great just at physically communicating effort and pain and things like that and i even think about the flashback where it's a very like detailed like process oriented flashback which is part of the reason i really Mm -hmm. like it it's a lot of you know him in the operating room just uh saying very curt things and like working inside of someone's viscera and then later when he's in that meeting in the board meeting where you know his father is uh defending himself against a possible malpractice suit it's mostly him sitting in a chair very uncomfortably and just like wrestling with stuff inside of him and again it's a very physical performance even there even in the middle of like a dialogue heavy scene and uh yeah i just i think it's him at his best and i think it's a great use of him on the show i also think it's it's funny his chemistry with kate is so good when they're arguing. I think it's with better when they're arguing like with they each s- other. Yeah. 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 They spend this whole episode arguing about what's the most righteous right. thing to do, essentially. And it's actually great. They they really push and pull off each other in a way that works so much better than like him trying to like awkwardly flirt with her or something. Or her being like, You're just jealous that I'm spending yeah. time with Sawyer. And yeah. it's like, this doesn't make Honestly, any sense like to me, Simp you know? Jack is the worst Jack. 
when he is asserting himself and when he's yeah. arguing with Kate, that dynamic is so much more interesting to watch, yeah. I'd say. And we, we get a little of Simp Jack in the following Ooh. episodes. So. Yeah, this is yeah, rough. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this episode is fucking yeah. fantastic. Um, I Oh, go go ahead, man. No, I was going to say, I really like uh, Terry O'Quinn's performance in this yes. episode as well. He just comes on so strong. He immediately sort of knows what to do. Even when he seems like he's a little bit winded because he's tired from tr- so much tracking. Yeah, he just seems like the quintessential, like, hero, knows it all, very wise and very smart. And I, I, I like the way that he um, projects that on screen. It's such an impressive performance. I was so struck by mm-hmm. it, watching it again because... He is paired up with Ian Summerholder, I think in a desperate attempt to try and like bring something out of Boone. And the thing is, Summerholder's giving him nothing in that scene. He is essentially like, he he's just got the weakest acting partner out of the entire cast. And his performance yeah. is incredible. He's so good in those moments. You hear Boone talking about star trek and it's like lindelof coming in with this easy layup of him joking about a red shirt character and uh i i don't believe that boone has watched star trek a day in his life no listening to him talk about it it's like it doesn't sound like he knows what he's talking about at all and uh i mean not a huge reach to be like oh yeah ian summerholder didn't have time to be watching deep space nine because he was drowning in pussy i'm i'm really surprised i'm really surprised that he doesn't know the ins and outs of voyager that he wasn't thirsting after seven of nine (laughs) on the Mm -hmm. upn all right yeah (laughs) just shut it down just shut it down you know what i'm saying it's just so funny to me. It's like he could not sell those lines. No, at all. no. <laughs> and yet Terry O'Quinn completely made up for it just in his side of the performance. In some ways, I think that by this point they've created a, like a character web. There's an inner an inner core of characters who are the um, the main characters. They're the ones who probably take up the most screen time. They're the ones who have most uh, impact on the plot, and that's Locke, Jack, Kate, and Sawyer. Saeed is sort of there on the outskirts, but I think that it's those four. I um, it's setting up yeah. like an ongoing di- an ongoing dynamic of tension. Most of it involves Jack. Like Jack seems to have tension with Sawyer. He's clearly got tension with Kate. And this is the first time I think we've seen him sort of butt up against Locke as well. Right, because their belief systems are completely in polar opposition to one another. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that's... Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Because the thing about Saeed that's sort of becoming clear is that he's a character who can get a lot done, but they're sort of keeping him in reserve. Right. You know? He's right. he's sort of been shunted off into a separate storyline where like he has knowledge, but he's almost more of a resource for the yeah. other characters now, as opposed to someone with their own agency or with their own following. I mean, yeah. maybe part of that is just because, you know, he's already isolated himself once. He's a ex-Republican guard. So it's like you wouldn't see characters immediately flock to him, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, it is a little disappointing how he doesn't have a stronger, sort of more centralized role. I think it's because he's sort of like, he's sort of a shadow Jack. I feel like a lot of Saeed's character does overlap with, with Jack's. They just specialize in different things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think worked about the episode or didn't work about the episode? Boy, um, I love the look of it. It's uh, shot by Michael Bonvillain, who is kind of the, the DP who took over after Larry Fong did the first few episodes. 
but I think this is the first episode where he really replicates Fong's style from the pilot effectively. Mm -hmm. This episode has a really great grit to it. The camera moves mm -hmm. a ton. It doesn't have that kind of fakey like sitcom lighting that some of the mm -hmm. scenes can have sometimes, especially like stuff set at the caves where yeah. it's more constructed, you know? This episode just feels really, really raw and uh, like the camera's always moving with a purpose. I love the reveal of Ethan where it's in the jungle where there's all this rain and like Jack is just covered in mud and he's like writhing around. And then the combination of the rain, water on the lens and a bunch of light blows Ethan out so that he's this obscure figure. Oh, it's such a great reveal. And all the action is shot really well too. I was, I was yeah. just super impressed with it uh visually i thought that worked i thought that the flashback worked super well obviously like we've bagged on jack so much through all of these episodes but i really think the flashback works so well here i think it does such a good job of sort of setting up how jack is fundamentally broken and how in his desperate attempt to get out from under his father's shadow he's created this sort of fanatical righteousness within himself that he can't quit he can't quit being a hero when it's yeah, like the worst yeah. thing in the world for him you know and uh yeah i mean i just think this is such a good physical episode i mean and i don't I, obviously i'm like thirsting on this podcast all the time but i don't mean this even in mm, a thirsty thirst. way i think the cast in this episode all look so <laughs> they all look so good in this episode because everyone is miserable gross. dirty yeah wet downtrodden injured it's such a good look for every single one of these actors and characters when jack is like in the fucking mud getting his chest stepped on you're just like this mm -hmm. is exactly how this character should look he should be as beaten down as possible and like sawyer is just peak hotness at this point his hair is grown out and he he's just like uh, fucking devastating oh in this i episode. can smell that i can see so the thirst dripping out now okay we won't we even go. get into kate she's very yeah, let's not. sweaty in this episode oh and boy it's a okay great all right sh shut it down <laughs> just shut it down it's funny how it it seems like they've figured out the ideal look for every character at this point mm. and it it works so well you you get so much conflict just from the physical side of this mm -hmm. episode and i was really impressed by that when you don't need dialogue yeah when you, your characters are all set up and they can just be in a scene that's always a good sign i think yeah any anything that didn't work about this episode for you i mean i think you already kind of touched on boone but yeah i, I think everything else on that episode and aside from michael going off on his separate uh, manhunt that is about oh, yeah. those two are about the only things i think don't really work about the episode yeah, again, because I'm not really even sure what the point of Michael going off. I'm not sure what that was about. The stuff that stands out, I think, overshadows the stuff that doesn't work. So, yeah, yeah. even when, yeah. you know, there's some stuff that just doesn't work, I think that the, the, the upsides are um, overshadow it. For sure. I, I got to put some of that onto the excellent directing by Stephen Williams, who oh, yeah? is the second most prolific director on Lost. He directed, uh, let's see... I believe 26 episodes altogether wow. across the series run. Yeah. But he only did two this season. He only did this one mm -hmm. and do no harm coming later, which we won't really get into because, mm -hmm. you know, it's a very spoilery episode, but 
two of the strongest episodes, especially from a directing standpoint, I think, in the season. And it's interesting how you got, like, Jack Bender, who was clearly, like, the series workhorse who was there to direct a ton of episodes from the very start. And this guy was more one of their guest directors bringing in to, you know, fill in gaps in the Mm -hmm. schedule, probably to give Bender a break between his big episodes and this guy really over delivered yes i think he crushed it he got his start working mostly in science fiction stuff like uh earth final conflict or uh space cases do do you remember space Cases? i do not remember space okay okay what was space cases i have this weird nostalgia for this show (laughs) it's just weird because space cases has a bunch of bizarre intersections with other genre television that came out very shortly after it. Mm-hmm. Space Cases was a show on Nickelodeon. I believe it aired on SNCC, actually. Oh, okay. okay. And it was about a group of kids, young teenagers, who, through some contrivance, they get stuck on this mysterious spaceship. They, like, leave, like, a star base or whatever, you know, and they get on this mysterious spaceship, and it warps away and takes them to some far-off place, and it's all about them trying to get home. So it's essentially the Voyager plot or the Farscape plot. Mm-hmm. And it's also like Farscape in that the ship that they're on is an organic life form, which I always thought was really cool. Okay. And they did that a year before Farscape came out. So you were a fan and of Space Cases. I was, I was, dude, at the time I was way you into, were into it. It, it might have been one of the first shows that I followed very serialized week to week. And they had this big season cliffhanger where one of the characters dies and I was shook, bro. <laughs> and the character who died was my favorite fucking character on the show. An early crush of mine who was uh, Jewel Stady, who played the plucky engineer on the show a couple years before Firefly, Mm -hmm. where she would play the same part. Oh, boy. It's so Mm -hmm. weird. Yeah. And uh, also you had in the lead role uh, another actor I really... (laughs) Not one of my favorite actors in terms of his, like, body of work, but he's just just a guy who has popped up in some of my favorite stuff, weirdly, who is uh, Walter Jones, Mm, who played... The Black Ranger mm-hmm. on Power oh, yeah. Rangers, and then was Rondell Robinson yes. in season one of The mm-hmm. Shield. And he was fucking great on Space Cases. He was the guy who was like, I'm on this corny ass Nickelodeon show and I'm gonna act <laughs> like like I'm putting this on my Oscar reel, you know? <laughs> uh and I just I just mad respect for that hustle, man, you know? Anyway, so yeah, so he directed an episode of Space Cases, and I was immediately <laughs> brought back with a rush of nostalgia. The show that literally nobody fucking remembers <laughs> oh man uh, around that same time uh steven williams he did his first feature it was called uh, soul survivor it's about like a, a jamaican immigrant living in toronto and essentially trying to keep things on the straight and narrow and getting pulled into a life of crime mm-hmm. it was like a sundance movie basically and okay. i don't think it was super well received but a, a passion project and i think his brother starred in it but okay. um i did notice it only had 14 views on Letterboxd, which is pretty egregious and only one review. And the review on it was someone mistakenly logging the Elijah Dushku horror movie Soul Survivors, (laughs) which was like an urban legend. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) 
oh, how does Steven feel about this? That can't feel good. He's got to right? be so upset. <laughs> it's like, oh, somebody on Letterboxd finally reviewed my debut. This thing's been out of print for ages. And he pops it up and they're like, Elijah Dushku was looking really hot, but I could tell who the killer was from the jump. And he's just like, oh, oh, no. That is some... <laughs> SEO optimization not coming through Ooh, for you. Oh, not man. at all. So, um, yeah, he directed a bunch more genre TV after that. He did a couple episodes of uh, Dark Angel. That's with uh, Jessica Alba? Yeah, that was like Jessica Alba's first role. Michael Weatherly? Yes. Is that the name? Yeah, Michael, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, dude. Yeah. But yeah, it was James Cameron B-side. kind of yep. producing an action show. And I mm-hmm. remember when it came out, they were really advertising it on his name. Like, this is going to be a James Cameron action movie right. on TV every week. And it it was not. No. <laughs> Very not. Canadian production value. Cybernetically enhanced assassin. And, you know. Mm-hmm. Lots of Jessica Alba. That's Lots just what I Jessica remember. Jessica Alba with RoboVision, I feel like. Yep. You know? that was <laughs> so we don't it. have to spend any money. <laughs> 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 but, uh, I mean, it launched her career. So, you know, Mazel For sure. Tov, I guess. And he also was on Crossing Jordan. Uh, Lindelof was on the writing staff there. Mm-hmm. He also directed a bunch of other things that had lost alumni involved with it. Mm-hmm. To some extent, he directed episodes of The Undercovers that I think right. we talked about already. He directed Person of Interest, Intelligence. Intelligence, yes. Oh, a, yes. A bunch of other quality shows The Americans, Bloodline, Ray Donovan, yeah. Westworld. And uh, he did two episodes of Watchmen, including yes. my personal favorite episode and an episode I would put forth as one of the best directed hours of television ever which is episode six. It's so good. Absolutely one of the most extraordinary hours of TV. The way that every shot in that is constructed, it just, it blows my Mm -hmm. mind. I love it so much. So, yeah. yeah. That show is a tour de force, to say the least. It is, and he was really, he was bringing the heat. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. I guess, uh, is there is there anything else we want to say? I guess the only other thing I would say, aside from like how great the reveal of the hatch is, it's really wonderful. It's so exciting. I remember at the time just absolutely being on pins and needles to hear more about what that was. And immediately the show <laughs> throws you right <laughs> off of that, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. So we're talking about the next episode, we're, right? We're, we're getting just, we're just into gonna it. Go I guess I would just say, too, that... Um, I like the ambiguity with Charlie's resurrection where you mm-hmm. could really take it as maybe the island 
was involved to some extent that the island maybe helped bring him back because we already know that miracles can occur here and when charlie comes back he's so out of it and it almost feels like they're suggesting that he's a little bit zombified that he crossed over into death and the island pulled him out of it but he's something of like a shell of his former self that he lost something in the process i thought Uh, that he lost something yeah and now he's found oh okay all right i thought that was a pun attempt on your part oh no oh yeah uh... no okay all right just checking. Just checking. <laughs> no, All right. No. He just, it's like he got she lobbed or something. Oh, really? Almost dead, but oh, okay. not, not all the way dead. You just had to toss that in there, didn't and you? He comes back, but he's just going to be a little bit more broken from that. Okay. Mm, all right. Yeah. So he's going to need to, like, maybe hop on a ship, maybe at the. Yeah, yeah. I prescribed him nice one Grey Haven's visit to take care of that. One trip to the Undying Lands, please. Oh, boy. Yep. <laughs> Sipping on that wine. Yeah. That's what that wine will do to you. That's what the dollar store wine will do to you. <laughs> It'll get you talking about Lord of the Rings again. So episode oh, 12, I mean... <laughs> so so like the Grey Havens, man, do you think... No, let's not. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> nice try. Nope, we're not doing that. As long no. as we're talking about crossing the threshold from life to death and all that. What, uh, so what do you think is happening in episode 12? It's so strange. Do you... Yeah. I am not certain that they thought out clearly what episode order in which the episodes were going to be released, because this feels like a left turn that just comes out of nowhere with no explanation. It's inexplicable, and um, it kills all of the momentum that the previous two episodes have set up and established, just to have an episode about Kate mourning the loss of uh, a boyfriend or loved one and chasing a super, excuse me, a briefcase around the island. And also, everyone just being horny. Yeah. Everyone completely forgetting about all of the insane issues that have piled up, all of the mysteries, getting Claire back, any of that. Everyone's like, you want to just, like, take your clothes off and go for a swim (laughs) and, uh, you know. It's so weird. Who thought that that was a good idea to put this episode right after a pregnant woman has been abducted? It's so crazy, too, because they already switched an episode in the order. They already took the episode solitary and moved it before the Claire kidnapping because they were worried about having an episode about Hurley building a golf course when (laughs) Claire had just been kidnapped. And then they They do do the the exact same thing. Yes. It doesn't make any sense. This would have been an episode that would have been better later on, I guess, in the season or possibly even just cut out completely. You think earlier? Okay. I think you put this episode six or seven, something like that. Just have it be like kind of one of the lulls, one of the moments where everyone Mm -hmm. is they're trying to pull like all of the uh, the pieces of wreckage off the beach mm-hmm. and get their luggage off because the tide is coming in. It all feels like very early season That's problems fair. to me where they're still figuring out the island, figuring out each other, seeing who's attracted to who and all this stuff. It doesn't feel like stuff that should be happening once we're ramping up towards yeah. the climax. Yeah, I, know, I agree. No, <laughs> we're not. Because <laughs> we're, we're only halfway through. So we are talking about whatever the case may be, which is a Kate-centric episode. Yeah. It's a wild ride, if only because it is coming right off of the incredible directing and incredible action in the previous episode. So in whatever the case may be, the Losties decide to abandon the shore because the mysterious ocean tides are slowly destroying the beach camp. Rose, she gives Charlie some for real truth nuggets, some real island therapy. 
She does not care at all that this man has almost died or that he has been abducted or that someone that he cares about has been abducted. She is just going to tell him the truth through and through, and he's just going to have to live with it. And it it kind of works. It's funny, dude, how Lindelof has always said he's not a particularly religious person. But so often in his work, you have these characters who are incredibly faithful, essentially Very like devout. hammering their beliefs yeah. into a psychologically vulnerable person. And it's not treated as a particularly like unsettling uh, questionable experience. Yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. It's more like this person is instilling them with some <laughs> with sort wisdom. of strength yes. whenever this happens. Yes. Yeah. It's so weird. It's so yeah, I don't particularly <laughs> like uh this iteration of Rose. I like her 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 wisdom that she's passing on, but the spiritual aspect just it it rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, I, I and it I, always I, hits so intensely. It, yeah, too, it did. especially on Charlie. Yeah, right? this confused young man who's sort of fallen out of the faith, and everyone's just like, "Yeah, deny me again, and I'll show you what to believe." It seems so intense. It is very. Yeah. yeah, it hits hard. So yeah, as Rose is giving Charlie the real news, Said and Shannon they hit it off while trying to translate Rousseau's journal or some of her notes that Said had stolen. The main storyline is uh, again Kate centric. Kate Sawyer, they go on a sexually charged skinny dip in this pristine lagoon. They discover a briefcase, some dead bodies, you know, as one does. What follows is basically a game of keep away as Sawyer, he hoards the case. Kate tries to steal it repeatedly, and she's really focused on like getting at the contents of this uh, suitcase. It should be the briefcase. During the Kate flashback, we see that she's at a bank. And she is held hostage, and uh, over the course of the uh, short story, we find out that actually she is the planner. She is the architect of the entire heist, and that she's trying to get at whatever is inside of this uh, safe deposit box. Jack, he goes back into simp mode, and he violates all types of personal boundaries, including just, like, really asking Kate, like, what's inside of this uh, briefcase? And essentially, he gets the case from Sawyer and demands that Kate sort of disclose the contents. And she tells him, and it, the whole thing just feels ugly. You know, like it comes away feeling yeah. kind of nasty, and I didn't feel good at the end of the episode. And she gets it to get one sentimental item. I don't think the show fully gets you to buy into the idea that she would be so emotionally attached to this, yeah. to the memory of this person via this plastic airplane, that she would be able to make all of these people around her that miserable. It seems very questionable. Very questionable. And I, yeah, yeah it, I did not feel good coming away from that storyline. And then just to cap it all off, as Saeed and Shannon and very unlikely pair are deciding that, you know, hey, maybe we're into each other. Maybe we like each other. Maybe there's some chemistry there. They're being spied on by none other than Boone. And Boone is at this point, I think, he's he's doing all the creepy. He's He's done. He's checked off all of the creepy stuff on the island. He is stolen from people. He's creeping on his sister as she's, like, getting close to this guy. Um, he's hanging out with this old dude in this jungle. Everything that Boone does just feels weird <laughs> at this point. Am I right? Yeah, and he's fully ready to become a cadet in whatever bizarre, like, traveling cult Locke wants to set up. Be like, here, Boone, drink this Kool-Aid. I Boone is right. totally down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the rain's going to start in just a couple minutes. Just stick mm-hmm. your hand in my pants, little boy. 
<laughs> you get that vibe from it for sure. And totally. Boone would be like, oh, I mean, I'm just a passive observer in this situation. I guess I'll go along, you know? That's the vibe, man. Oof. It's weird. Yeah. yeah. I, th- yeah I don't. It's all, all types of bad with him. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't really like this episode. Yeah. I'll say this. I think the flashback's really good, actually. Really? I think okay. that this flashback is a really fun, sort of busy exciting situation with some nice twists in it and i love any time that kate is just sort of getting one over on every other character and uh revealing herself to be the mastermind behind something it's something that the show doesn't do often enough too often i think the show undercuts her ability to manipulate other characters around her whereas here you just see her essentially you know being this boss ass bitch and uh also setting this guy up for a complete fall as a bank robber and in the process proving to him that he means nothing to her Mm -hmm. you know the last thing she says to him is that you know maggie's not my name like you don't know a thing about me yeah and uh i i liked that i thought uh i thought this flashback was very much at odds with the episode around it in that the episode around it wasn't particularly urgent in any way despite the fact that the world's most (laughs) pregnant girl is currently kidnapped by a madman who just hung one of their friends from a tree and yet everybody's everyone is chilling everyone is chilling saeed's gonna flirt with shannon why is saeed not tearing through the jungle looking for this guy right now instead he's you know kind of creeping up on shannon while she's got her top off and being like uh you know the sun here might be more intense than you're used to it was a very awkward first line into that situation i thought that was one of those real like i just want to hang out and maybe see your boobs right now lines there's nothing working like uh, amongst the characters there's nothing that's working between any of them in my opinion i'll say i think maggie grace is really good in this episode i think that she is really selling the attraction and connection to Saeed, I think she does a great job with that speech she has where she's like, I feel so mm-hmm. useless, which feels like the writer's kind of trying to get out ahead of maybe some of the criticism of her character. I think she's been performing really well. And it's kind of crazy to me now that she was so many people's least favorite character really? when this really? show started. Who do you, I mean, who do you think it should have been at this point? Oh, Boone. Okay, so you're saying Boone. E- oh, man. Yeah. Hmm. Because Boone is is set up to be a more sympathetic character. But he's more useless than Shannon, actually. He is, actually. Because he's trying to help and he makes things worse. Or he goes out and steals from people to help other people. His motives are always so bizarre, so creepy. Summerholder can't sell any of it. He can't sell that he's watched an episode of fucking Star Trek, for God's sake. But I think Maggie Grace is really good here. I love the part at the end where, you know, she starts singing. Uh, La Mer. Mm-hmm. Is it La Mer? I just know it is Beyond the Sea, you know, but I guess that's the remake. But uh, yeah, you know, got a great voice, and I like how it's like a within diegesis sort of musical mm-hmm. montage to end that. And speaking of music, I, I mean, we got to talk about Giacchino. He's, he's come up a few we, times. I mean, but all right yeah. go ahead no no he's i'm just i'm just saying he's great he's doing absolutely heroic work in both of these episodes and in every episode of lost he absolutely pulls things together there's so many times when the climax of an episode is almost entirely conjured by a single performance 
accompanied by his incredible score and he's bringing so much emotion to it he's bringing so much sort of like cogency to mm-hmm. an emotional resolution that might not even be there without him uh so i just think he's invaluable i didn't really know anything about this guy until i saw the batman trailer really and then i realized he was the guy who was creating the theme and had i think scored the movie and i was like this guy rocks oh shit dude yeah he is one of the biggest composers in hollywood now. i had no idea oh, i had yeah. no idea yeah and he is amazing he had such an interesting rise man so uh oh, yeah he got his start composing midi 16-bit video game music for I'm already Disney on board. Interactive. I'm a fan. Yeah, he started doing the scores for like the Sega Genesis Gargoyles and for nice. the SNES Lion King. Did you ever yes, play that? I that did play it. It was impossible. so hard. It was, it was so impossible. hard. Oh, that game was so hard. I never beat it. It's like, don't worry about Mufasa dying. <laughs> You're going to watch Simba die a thousand not- times before his dad dies once. How's that to take the impact out of that? Yep. <laughs> he he composed the music for the Lost World Jurassic Park tie-in that came out on PlayStation and Sega Saturn, and that was uh, one of the very, very first console games that actually had a live orchestra record the score for it. Oh, cool. So right from there, he's starting to make his mark as, you know, a real composer, classically trained, all that. He just did a bunch of, like, big video game franchises through the 90s. He did a bunch of Medal of Honor games. He did Call of Duty Finest Hour, which was the console port of the original Call of Duty. I just find that kind of interesting because Call of Duty is, like, one of the biggest series of all times, but almost no one has played the first game. Yeah. It came out for PC and it was no, not, not like a big hit and it went to consoles and nobody really liked it at the time. And I think like Medal of Honor was totally that was sort the, of like yep. the beta mm-hmm. to its VHS. Yeah. And then Call of Duty 2 was one of the first games on the 360 and suddenly yep. everybody is yep. worshiping at its feet. And uh, I find that switch over really, really interesting, you know, really weird how that went. But anyway, so in 2001, JJ hires him onto Alias. He's doing great work there, and he switched right over from Alias to Lost and just does the music on every episode. He said the workload on the first season of Lost especially was absolutely insane. He would work like 20 hours at a time and then sleep for like a couple hours and then get right back to it because he just had to do scoring for almost every minute of every episode. Yeah, and he's just doing incredible stuff too. Like a bunch of the percussion and woodwind instruments you hear in this are actually instruments he built out of pieces of the plane what? that they took off the beach <laughs> yeah like a lot of the percussion and a lot of those like weird sort of woodwinds where it sounds like you know wind blowing through some mm-hmm. hollow mm-hmm. strange instrument mm-hmm. almost like a didgeridoo or something that's actually like a piece of the fuselage that he just absconded with and made part of that's his orchestra. incredible so, yeah, I mean, real, like, king shit, dude. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he uh, he won an Emmy for his work on the first season. And right around the same time, I think in the summer following the first season, is when The Incredibles came out, which was his first feature wow. score. What a, and it's a great score. I love the, yeah, I love the music in that uh, movie. Yep. Yeah. And since then, you know, he's just, he's continued to do Pixar scores. He did the music for Ratatouille and Up, and he won the Oscar for Up, which, I mean, well fucking yeah. deserved. The music in that movie is devastating. Okay, so this is all him. All right, every time. yeah. That guy is a pro. Good grief. 
Yeah. He is, dude. He he scored a bunch more uh, Abrams movies. He scored the 2009 Star Trek, Super 8. He uh, did the pilot for Fringe. But then early in the 2010s, he got on to do the score for Doctor Strange. And Marvel liked him so much that they actually had him create the fanfare for the MCU. Mm. Oh. That plays during their like very overblown, yeah. mm-hmm. long-ass logo where you have all the like clips, clips of the, of the movie yeah. in between yeah. the letters. Yeah, yeah. I really don't like that <laughs> logo very much, but the music yeah. is excellent. And yeah, I mean, he just continues to be like one of the most sought-after guys in Hollywood. Okay, so yeah, this is the guy. This is like John Williams, and then it's this guy. And maybe like who, like Hans Zimmer, Howard Schur. Yeah, Hans Zimmer too, for sure. I mean, people love to hate on Zimmer because he farms out a lot of his compositions to other people. But you fucking know when you're listening to a Hans Zimmer Oh, yeah, movie. you do. You yeah. know, no question. Yep. Yeah, um, no I guess at all. Uh, Alejandro Desplat is probably up there too. He does all the like Wes okay. Anderson scores and he scores okay. a lot too. Uh, I really like his work. But uh, yeah, this was kind of, he, he did some music on Alias, but a lot of, Alias was kind of more like electronic, sort of like house music. I feel like this is where he really got to stand out as like uh, an old school film composer was on Lost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Any other thoughts that you have just about the episode before I head into like overrated, underrated? (laughs) Um, One other thing is that I definitely was wondering watching these episodes again, how much JJ was involved at this point, because... I've heard Mm. from some directors that he was like okaying almost every single detail of their script and of the direction that they were doing. So he seemed like super hands-on. And then I also have heard a lot of stuff where it's like Lindelof was bringing in cues and they were sort of flying without a net and the writers were coming up with a ton of stuff on the fly. And it was like, there wasn't, wasn't a heady, a steady hand. And yeah. And Abrams seemed like he was in the wind basically. So I was reading up on it, and I found out that actually All the Best Cowboys is the last episode that J.J. worked on before he essentially separated from the show as a showrunner. Wow. He kind of fully dipped out after that, and I think it's interesting that it's that episode, too, because it's a really strong episode, and immediately you Mm -hmm. lose a certain sense of direction coming off that, and also because... The whole thing where Charlie gets resuscitated, he totally lifted and took right over to Mission Impossible 3. It feels like that might have been a JJ idea because he did that exact same thing. The climax of Mission Impossible 3 is, uh, what's her name? Michelle Monaghan, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. trying to resuscitate Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise and she gives right. up. And then she like hits him again and his that's heart restarts. Right. It doesn't work nearly as well no. in that movie because no. you're like, oh man, yeah, is Tom Cruise going to wake up? I imagine so. But uh in this one, it's just, it's incredible. It's a great moment. I mean, I think yeah. that's interesting because it definitely speaks to uh, the force that a, a showrunner can have and the impact that a showrunner can have on a writer's, mm-hmm. or on a writer's room and the direction, like the, the single focus that a show needs, especially a show like this. This show needed a brain trust, like a single mind, I think, in order to weave together all of the disparate ideas that everyone is throwing out in order to make this like a coherent story. And it seems like after you're right, like after Cowboys, 
they lose all of that. And I'm not sure, I, I don't know if the, the episode order has something to do with that, the way in which they release them, but it th- that gives a sense that, um, yeah, like maybe no one is at the wheel. Yeah, or, or that Abrams was like this forceful personality too, who could really make strong decisions and Lindelof maybe wasn't as secure in that role yet because he felt like he was just one writer among many and his creative position as the head he was a little bit more like leading through committee yeah so yeah you just you have an episode where you feel like all right last one from jj and he's just gonna blow it out and really make an episode that has so much purpose and so much movement to it and then when he dips it's like oh yeah i guess we'll just it just feels like the threads just yeah, come apart yeah we'll just mess around you know yeah. explore these characters yeah. <laughs> at the wrong time <laughs> totally overrated underrated I, I'm coming back to Walt, Hurley, and Sawyer. I, I really like that that dynamic. I really, actually, I just really like Walt. I really like Walt and how he plays off of all of the older actors in the show. He does a really, really good job. And so maybe underrated is is Walt. But yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. He gives a great performance where he's giving all of the adults shit. Yep. But it doesn't feel like a typical precocious kid. Nope. Thing. It more feels like a preteen guy like getting into like his tweener years being really fed up with being talked at like he's a kid he's so tired of people taking an adult tone with him and he's just like you guys are full of shit it's that and i think it's the wisdom of a young person who has been disappointed by adults so many times and so i think it's just like part of him understanding who his dad is and being slightly disappointed by his dad or his mother or his stepfather, I think he's referred to. And he's just kind of like, no, I can see through all of this. None of this is, uh, this is all garbage. Yeah. Yeah. It enriches Michael's character in the process too. Mm-hmm. It really does. Yeah. 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 What would you say? Oh, for underrated? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say for underrated, a scene without dialogue, I think is underrated. Mm. I think TV writers, their bread and butter is dialogue heavy scenes and these episodes are such a good example of when characters actually stop talking and just do Mm -hmm. things it can be so compelling especially when you already know who these people are and where little bits of character and little bits of their history can just come out through their physical performance you know i mean i think some of the best parts of whatever the case may be are just when sawyer is desperately trying to open that case you have the moment where he even like uh is pained by like his bicep and it's just a totally wordless sequence and that's way more interesting than watching jack and kate hash things out for the millionth time about Mm -hmm. whatever the fuck And then, you know, the previous episode speaks for itself in that regard, too. So many dialogue-free sequences that just work incredibly well. Overrated? I mean, I'm just going to have to go with it. Uh, Pregnant Claire. Clearly overrated for the the overall plot uh, and flow of the story. She clearly was not that important. Clearly overrated based on how much people care about getting her back. No one cares. Jesus Christ. They're relieved. Dude, I think that they're secretly relieved that she is gone. They're like, oh my God, the pregnant woman's gone. Who's going to look for her? Not me. Yeah. 
They're like, this island's pretty goddamn big. There's no way we can find her. How could you make that assumption? How could you immediately be like, there is too much area for us to comb looking for this girl who is nine months pregnant and also who screams like a banshee. It's already been established. If she has a single moment yep. where she can call out, you're going to fucking hear her. But uh, I guess, I mean, you know. Nobody cares. Just, yep. Nobody, yep. Nobody's too interested right now. Um... Oh. What's that? You know what I'll yeah. say for overrated? I'm going to say Jack Bender is a oh. little bit overrated. Okay. Because he directed whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. and he is the most frequent director on Lost. Mm -hmm. Clearly from the start, they were like, this guy is going to be the one on the ground directing all of our big episodes. He directs every single finale, and he does a lot of great work on the show. But I don't think he's particularly good with a lighter, with a more fun, with a hornier episode that's just about the characters bouncing off each other. Okay. I think that... This is supposed to be one of those episodes that's just kind of about a bunch of pretty people stuck in one location, and that's supposed to be the charge of it. And it feels awkward all through this episode. Yeah, it does. There's a certain awkwardness to all of the flirting. Even when you get Sawyer and Kate, a couple stone-cold hotties. Oh, no. Just, essentially stripping down to go for out again. Swim. Oh, God. It just feels weird. And he's immediately like, oh, yeah, let me let me get right to the part where they discover these dead bodies <laughs> floating in the water. It's such a weird... And you can tell he puts so much more effort into that than into anything that preceded. Ugh, you know? Yeah, that's fair. So, um, yeah, I'll go, uh, I'll go overrated with him. And I'll also go overrated with him because... A friend of mine actually worked with him and said that he was a huge asshole to literally everyone on the crew that they were working on. So, you know, I just every time I think about him, I think about that. I think about this person who is just incredibly nice, polite, super hardworking and super competent and uh, how Jack Bender made them cry on an almost daily wow. basis. All right. So, just, You've got just, some strong uh, reasons there, some strong yeah. motives. That does stick in my craw just right. a little bit. Fair enough, fair enough. All right. Yeah. So we got some power rankings. I think we pretty much decided we were going to do the same set of rankings based on the same thing. Are we t are we in agreement on that? I think you just had such a good idea that I was like, oh, yeah, let you me You just wanted to crawl in on that, on didn't that. you? Mm -hmm. You want to go first? <laughs> no, no. Please. Oh, you want me to go first? Okay. <laughs> yes, All right. yes, because I'm just going to be, uh, I'm just going to be revising your ranking. <laughs> <laughs> just... Okay, here we go. Just making substitutions, all right. that's all. So today, yeah. all of the all the power rankings are going to be um, moral dilemmas across cinematic history, modern cinematic history, more likely just stuff that's been like within the last 20 years. So, okay. At five, I do have Jack and Christian, okay? I've got them just in honor of the show. <laughs> in honor of the show. <laughs> Jack and Christian? Jack and Christian. We're just going to go with... I mean, We've got the more germane to the discussion at yes. hand, but my goodness, I know, I know, <laughs> that's in your top. That's five in my top. Cinematic I, history? It's in honor to the show. I feel like I got to tie <laughs> that right. in. All yeah. Right. Um, so I've got Jack and Christian. We've got Jack being pressured to lie for his dad, and he's got the ethical dilemma there. Okay. All right. I just had to get that out of the way. At four, I've got: Do you take the red pill or do you take the blue pill? Man, because watching it. Oh, again, I know. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. We all just heard Cypher's speech and said, yeah, yeah, fucking blue pill all day. Are you kidding me? You want to live in absolute squalor and getting like murdered by robot octopi? I don't fucking think so. 
You want to roll your dice on a very pleasant recreation of 1999. Give me that blue pill, son. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Here we go. On to number three. Uh, from Spider-Man mm. 1, does Peter Parker save Mary Jane or does he save the bus full of children that are about to fall off the bridge? Ooh, nice. Moral dilemma. Nice. All right. That's such a Sam Raimi dilemma. It really is. <laughs> This beautiful girl you Save love, the woman you love, the absolute manifestation of a trolley problem. All of these screaming children packed into this metal canister yep. who are going to get smashed the fuck up Ooh, yeah. if you don't save them. This is one of my favorites. Uh, he's, just, right. he's the best. He's he so is. funny with that shit. Whew. You can always tell. It's like, nah, nah. He doesn't nah. want you to take this that seriously. Mm-mm. Nope. All right. At number two. Uh, we've got, do you keep the ring for yourself or do you destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom? Ooh. Moral dilemma. I hear you, man. I mean, obviously we know the right choice. Yeah, we know yeah, the right yeah. choice. But I don't know, man. I kind of want to see Galadriel with that ring. Okay. I kind of want to see mm. her making all of Middle Earth this bow is, down, Okay, man. yeah, this is getting too Not thirsty. Mean? Yeah, okay, we're moving on. <laughs> and at number one. Hey, hey, nope. in place of a dark lord, nope, you would have a nope, queen. Nope. That's all I'm you saying. What? Let's just shut that down. Don't sound that bad. We don't need any monarchy over here. <laughs> all right. At number one, we've got the Dark Knight and uh, the Joker's decision to pit two boats worth of people against one another. Do they blow each other up or do they decide to um, be friends and cooperate? Oh, my God. The fucking fairy the situation. Fairy situation. From the fairy situation. The Dark Knight, oh, yes. Moral man. dilemma. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those are my five. Uh, what are yours? Oh, boy. I mean, The Dark Knight would definitely not be my number one. Get out of here. But, uh, you know, now now you say this. And uh, um, this is this is tougher than I thought. What? Actually. Oh, my God. Okay. Hold on a second. Moral quandaries in talking cinema. talking so much garbage beforehand. Now I can't even think of anything. Oh, so embarrassing, dude. Oh, okay. So I got one. Right. You know, I'm going to go old school. Since you went with the fucking dark night. Yeah, I did. You know what? And I'm totally, I stand beside it, okay? See, I don't even know if that'd be my number one from the dark night. I feel like the biggest moral quandary in that movie is whether or not Bruce Wayne reveals his identity to save a hospital from being blown Good call. up. Because he has that shit earlier, and uh, you end up having Harvey Dent saying that he's the Batman to take himself into custody right. just to try and delay him. And you realize that, oh, man, he might actually have more inner strength than that's interesting. Bruce Wayne. Yeah, in that's case, interesting you know? because I also think... There's another moral dilemma in that movie as well, which I'm just going to toss this one over to you, which is, does Batman keep the supercomputer that uses everyone's cell phone as a way to track their uh, location and their conversations, or does he destroy it? Because clearly some people kept it in real life, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like uh, Google (laughs) and Apple. (laughs) And all of the other companies that build listening devices that we use every day now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so The Dark Knight's got a few. It's got a few. I mean, I would point instead to something like Casablanca, where you've got Rick. He's the guy who has given up on the world, who does not give a shit, who is at this point of absolute neutrality in the middle of the greatest crisis the world has ever seen, like the absolute heat of World War II. And he's over here and he realizes... I don't give a shit about the world, but I might actually have to let this woman who I am so insanely, completely in love with go so that the free world can continue to exist. That's and a he good fucking one. That's does That's a good it. one. Yeah. Rick Blaine is the man. Rick Blaine is the man, man. It's, it's yeah. tough. It is All tough. All right. That's a good dude. one. I like that. 
Um, another one I would go with then is just uh, in The Godfather, Michael Corleone. Mm-hmm. You've got the guy who has pulled away from the family to such an extent and yet knows that really he's the only guy who's level-headed enough to to run the business it mm-hmm. and to get shit done you know that Sonny is absolutely gonna mm-hmm. flame out in a short amount of time and that uh if he doesn't take over things are just gonna get so much worse but uh the interesting thing is that i think he actually makes the choice for fairly self-obsessed and shallow reasons just that that cop punches him in the oh. face and he wants to get revenge wow. on him that's what really takes him down the dark path is just that he feels disrespected. Wow. Okay. And that's what he, that's when he can't get out of his own way All anymore. Right. Okay. And then by the end of it, he's fucking forsaken his family essentially for his, his line right. of work. You know, it's the right. dawn and door closes on Diane Keaton's face. What a great scene. All right. Yeah. What else? Oh, oh, here's one. Here's one. I'm, I'm just keeping it classic. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep it all like pre-90s. This is right on the edge, though, but it's such a good one, which is in Do the Right Thing, oh. where Mookie mm-hmm. fucking goes and picks up that trash yep. can and smashes the window of the pizza yep. parlor. And it's that thing where you realize, like, that is the right thing mm-hmm. to do in the situation that he's mm-hmm. come to. In the end, not standing up and saying, destroy this property, burn it all down, mm-hmm. because we we just need to say that that is not worth more than a human life. Right, right. And that's the statement that he fucking makes. And the way that he makes it is by burning his job, his livelihood, a friendship that he yeah. has, too, with Danny Aiello. I mean, he and Sal were kind of tight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You feel that even in that last mm-hmm. scene where it's like they hate each other so much and they're smarting so much, and yet still they really cared about yeah. each other, you know? And he, he burned that. Still, though, it is the right thing yeah. in the end. That's a good one. That's a good one. Man, and uh, I don't know, man. I think I got to stop there. Okay. I don't think I can even top that. That one just hits for me so yeah. much. What a great movie. Yeah. You know what it's time for, right? Oh, yeah. I, I guess we're naming mm-hmm. some episodes, time. Let's huh? do it. All right. Uh-huh. We got three this time. Right. Let's do All it. All right. You better oh, be ready. Shit. Here we go. This season 5.2 episode of Breaking Bad was directed by Brian Cranston, Ooh during which a grizzled Walt retrieves Chekhov's ricin, Jesse gives away his millions, the cancer returns, and Hank has his first ever confrontation with Heisenberg. Oh, damn. Okay. I thought this was Granite Mm. State, but that's after Ozzy Mm -hmm. Mendes. That's, you know, after a few few things are resolved with some of those characters. I won't get Uh. into it. I'll try not to get too spoilery with it. Oh, damn. Is this like the second episode? It's the of first. 5.2? This is pretty. It's the first. Fuck. Oh man. Is it uh, live free or die? No. No. Shit. Mm. No. All right. No, I can't remember. It escapes me. So Damn. yeah, this season 5.2 episode of Breaking Bad was directed by Brian Cranston, during which Walt retrieves Chekhov's ricin. Jesse gives away his millions, the cancer returns, and Hank has his first ever confrontation with Heisenberg in Blood Money. Blood yeah. Money. Boy, that title did not stick with me. What an episode, yes. though, man. Oof, uh, so I good. actually got to tell Dean Norris in person that that moment where the garage door oh. comes down behind him. <laughs> it's so good. Is when 
we all <laughs> lost our shit and he had the biggest smile on his face dude that's awesome uh, it was really cool. all right yeah on to number two nice nice this season four episode of The Sopranos was directed by your favorite uh, director, Jack Bender, during which Carmela gets closer to Furio. Johnny Sack tries to defend his wife's honor. Meadow joins a law center in the South Bronx that represents underprivileged clients. This was the whole, yeah, that Furio arc, right, mm-hmm. right, right, where she's kind of like, is this after she, no, because she and Tony split up post season four yes. she's kind of off on her mm-hmm. own i think that's season that's where five. she has like the affair with straight david, david straight yeah is like early season five mm-hmm. uh fourth season any hint about the title of it it is two words uh one starts with a t the other starts with a w hmm. <laughs> i like coming back to season four of the sopranos because i know you are weak <laughs> you are weak on that yep. you know i'm mm-hmm. weak in season i know four. need oh, a bone man. up on that he... season four son I know, I know. I just, I haven't watched right. it since, since it came out. So it's episode um, four of season four. Episode four of season four, two yep. words. I feel like I know it. I feel like I know it though. Huh. Yeah. Any, any other hint about that? Uh, it's, well, I guess I can give you an, ep- how about, um, yeah, the episode itself. So it's in between Christopher and Pai oh My. Okay. Right. Right, right, right. And then after Pyomai is whoever did this. Let's see what came after Pyomai. Everybody hurts. Everybody hurts. Mm-hmm. Right. And then whoever did this is like maybe five or six or something. Um Oh, is it the weight? Yes, it is. Yes. Ding ding ding. Like ding the ding, band, ding. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Nice, nice. All right. Word. All right, here we go. Last one. This season four episode of Battlestar Galactica won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Special Visual Effects. It finds Starbuck explaining that she's found Earth, much to the disbelief of Leah Dama and the entirety of the Galactica crew. Oh, this is this is the first episode of season four, correct? I believe so, yeah. And we're talking 4.0, not 4.5. Yeah, 4.0. Yeah, right, 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 right. Hmm. <laughs> I remember the exact episode too, man. Yeah. Oh, it starts out with that great battle sequence. It does. Ty is like losing his shit about uh, what he just mm-hmm. learned. He just had a big uh, revelation. <laughs> oh, fuck, though. Um, shit. I feel like it's something about miracles or something like that. Oh, because it's about like Baltar like becoming this religious right. figure. He right? does. Yeah. And that season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and it's a reference to that. Uh, yeah, shit. it is. In right? some ways, yes. Mm-hmm. It starts with like and or something. Mm, no. Right? Mm-mm. No. No. Any any yeah, just a little hint. About so it's it. one, two, three, four. It's five words. Third episode. Mm-hmm. Wait, no, I, you know what? I'm sorry. Yeah. It's not the, it's so the, it's the first episode. Hold right? on, let me look at this. No, I'm wrong. So it is actually the third episode of the fourth season. My bad. Oh, yeah. it's not the premiere. Yeah, so it's kind of weird because the way that it's set up is um, Ronald D. Moore considers 
Razor to be the first two episodes of the actual fourth season. Oh, so yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. I see what so you're I'm saying. sorry. So it, it is, is technically the first. Yeah, but they call it the yes. premiere mm-hmm. back because I think Razor aired mm-hmm. in the summer between yeah. the two. God, Razor's such trash, dude. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. So my bad. Yeah. Sorry. Isn't it like uh, I thought it was like and he who follows me or something like so that? So you're close. You're close. Oh, fuck. What is it? It's he that believeth in me. Oh, yeah, you were damn close. Damn it! I oh, know, close, ah, my man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nice, nice. That was a, that was a valiant effort. I'll give you valiant effort. On that one. <laughs> well, moral nice. victory there. Moral victories. It's a slight moral victory, just in that <laughs> I try. I try to think about season four as little as possible. <laughs> Especially four point five. Oh boy! Yep. Strike Oof. that from the record. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, man. Any final thoughts on these two episodes, man? You know, it's funny. I'm still waiting for the show to kind of find its gear where mm-hmm. it's really running solidly from mm-hmm. one episode into the next. Uh, yeah, episode 11 feels so primed to be the start of a really great arc of serialization and yep. then it doesn't it doesn't Sputters. stick it doesn't yep. stick with it but man yeah what an awesome episode though definitely one of my favorites of the season yeah and uh it's another one that reminds me of how excited i was to learn all of these mysteries yeah to get more into the mythology of the show mm-hmm. how about you yeah i I, w- I would say the same i definitely like episode 11 i love the tension i love the way that again in any other show this would be the Isabella. This would be, you know, the rising action of a season. It sucks that the episode afterwards sputters and kind of just uh, pours water all over that. I, I am much more curious about the latter half of this season because I, I can't remember what happens in like Exodus parts one, two, and three. But I'm curious to see that and watch that all over again. Yeah, I remember the finale pretty well, but I feel like the episodes leading up to it, there was a bit of a blur mm-hmm. where it felt like there were just a lot of complications coming at us really fast. But I'm I'm curious to see how that ramp up feels now. No kidding. Even in this current age where, you know, you would think that being able to just like watch the show straight through would smooth things out. It's a weirdly not a show that I think feel smoother on the binge yeah i think you're right i agree yeah but we'll see how this plays out yeah man looking forward to it i'll just uh also say if you have any questions for us listeners feel free to email us at goatseasonpod at gmail.com you can also hit us up on the instagram at goatseasonpod i also just want to thank janice o'leary for our artwork josh sullivan for our intro music and battlequake for our outro and we will see you next week for two more episodes of lost Peace. Peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.